the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. Well, it's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Welcome to this week's Trade the Back podcast, brought to you by the good folks at BackpageFootball.com. We have a bumper show in the locker field this evening. Shortly we'll be joined by Oshin McKearns from Punit Arena to talk about everything Leeds United and the Marcelo Bielsa revolution that has them thriving in their long-awaited return to the Premier League. And we'll follow that up with sports writer and Extra Time Dari reporter Dylan O'Connell to talk about the shortened League of Ireland season that had seen Shamrock Rovers return to the summit for the first time since 2011 as well as the relegation of Cork City and their fall from grace, having won the title as recently as 2017. All that is to come a little bit later on, but first I'm joined, as usual, by Phil Green and Enda Higgins to make sense of the Premier League. How are you, lads? How are you? Good evening, lads. How are things? Good. All good, all good now. So, I suppose it was a fairly uneventful week for once in the Premier League. The um, law between United and Chelsea, Liverpool... Just about got over the line against Sheffield United. City and West Ham played out a one-all draw. Arsenal didn't look too convincing either um, in a bit of a damp squib. The likes of Everton and Villa were brought back down to earth as well with two home defeats. So consistency looks like it's going to be a real issue for every club in the conversation for, for the top four, top five. Um, we've seen the best and worst of nearly every side already and it's kind of hard to pinpoint really a team at this stage who either is going to do a Leicester or will take advantage of all this post-lockdown kind of uncertainty and the Titan calendar that's come with it and go on and win the title um, at a margin like we saw Liverpool did last year. Um, so I suppose in, in terms of entertainment um, and watchability, it's going to shape up to be a, a pretty interesting title picture. Um, in the, the United and Chelsea game, I, think, I mean, it was a pretty good chance for either side to assert some some bit of a statement on the league um, kind of like years past when they were both joking out for titles um, United especially after beating PSG midweek I suppose you had a lot of expectations with them coming into it and then Chelsea probably in bad need of a, of a big win against a big side it, it kind of felt like neither side really really keen on, on doing that though were they? No I mean I think we're starting to see the result as you said of um a pretty open few weeks where teams were undercooked, had no preseason, had a lot of games in quick succession, and the games were very open and disjointed um, and end to end. And as we've seen this week, it's kind of all gone the other direction. And I think they're starting to realise that you know, um, picking up points as opposed to conceding goals might be the way to go. Um, but just with my United hat on, I felt it was a really disappointing result for United. They had all the momentum going into the game. Um, Solskjaer has beaten Lampard three times in the past 12 months, twice in the league and even when they did lose in the FA Cup semi-final that was a result of some bad mistakes and you know United were had a lot of games around that time so it wasn't the biggest surprise that defeat um, and I felt it was a real opportunity to carry on the momentum of midweek where he got his team selection 
spot on. Eight or nine players played probably as well as they could on the night. Then changing formation kind of midway through the second half when I thought that would be a disastrous outcome. Um, not something that Solskjaer would usually do when United are under pressure in a match like that to make a more attacking change. And yet he did. And, and it was justified. And I felt going into the match that United really had all the momentum going with them. Uh, Chelsea struggled against Sevilla, had the draw against Southampton. So to see him go with the same lineup against that he had against Newcastle was a bit surprising for me. I think you're giving up just too much offensive territory in that regard with, you know, James and Matt on the wings who, you know, James was okay against Newcastle, but has struggled really since his good start. Matt on the wing will never be his favourite position. And obviously, when you're backed up as Wan-Bissaka and, and Shaw as your full-backs in the back four, you're just not really going to have too much wit um, or attacking prowess. Um, and then obviously McTominay and Fred <clears throat> as the midfield, <clears throat> excuse me, pivot. So I felt it was just a bit too negative for my liking. I felt I would like to have seen Tellez and probably Greenwood in that lineup, or maybe even go for the same formation that he started with against PSG. Um, and even the subs when they did come on, Greenwood and Pogba later in the second half, it was all a bit too too slow and, and a bit too late. Um, so I felt that it was a more disappointing result for United. Uh, mm. For Chelsea, I suppose the big surprise was the back five, seeing Chilwell. And James as the wing backs, I actually think that could be a good formation for them going forward because that can be a very offensive uh, setup if they go for a three-four-three. But I feel that with Lampard now, we're seeing the result of the pressure of having to buy the players, yeah. having to play the players he bought. Because I think yeah. this just felt like a match for Giroud for me. You know, United really struggle aerial, aerially, especially Lindelof. Giroud was excellent in the FA Cup semi-final against him. He's had you know good performances at Old Trafford in the past. And if we look at Werner, for example, he's somebody who has actually always played in sort of a 4-4-2, playing off the striker. Um, and now he's the one having to do that. And it's Havertz who's actually playing off the striker. And I just feel it doesn't work as well for Chelsea or Werner. So I think this would have been a perfect opportunity to try, to try Giroud with Werner off him. And instead, he, he had to kind of go with the, with the lads he's bought and then bring on Ziyech as well instead of Giroud, which again, he was a bit undercooked and had a pretty poor cameo. So... Um, you know, we're seeing with Lampard now the pressure of, of having to deliver with all these new signings, and I don't think it really suits him. I think last year when he was integrating Mount and Abraham um, and all the players that he inherited, I think that was a better situation for him. And, and we're seeing the result now of two managers just lacking a bit of confidence in themselves and their teams and what they're trying to do at the moment. And I think it was all a bit of a damn squib in the end, disappointingly. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular reason why um, Van, De- Van de Beek doesn't seem to be getting a look in? Um, I know there's a picture of him on the bench there in one of the games looking a fairly consulate as a... Yeah, as, in as fairness to him, he's really nailing the miserable substitution look in the stand. I mean, every game it looks like, you know. So, you know, kudos to that. I, I think it's too early to make these huge judgments that, you know, we see Gary Neville and Pete Evra, he, he must be regretting. I mean... They've had five games. He's scored on his debut. He had a great cameo against Newcastle. He started in the League Cup. As it goes on, this will become more of, more of an issue, but there's always somebody who should be playing for United. It was Mkhitaryan in his first season. Then it was Fred the next season. So, you know, we're not hearing this about, you know, Ferran Torres, for example. If we look at even at Liverpool, mm. Fabinho didn't play in his first two or three months, and then he became one of their most important players. So I think there's, there's loads of time for him. I mean, United are just a couple of injuries away from you know, having no attacking midfielders again like they did last season. So I think the bigger issue is to get the formation right at the moment. And I would like to see the lineup against PSG in that kind of 3-4-1-2. Um, it seems to get the best out of whether it's Lindelof, Transavi, Shaw as left centre-back, 
Uh, Wan-Bissaka has his best game at right full, right wing back, which I wasn't expecting. Tellez, that would be perfect for him. And then you kind of, you don't have the problem of having no right winger. And then you can pick your best two strikers out of Cavani, Greenwood, Martial and Rashford. Then with Fernandes in behind um, or at Van de Beek or Pogba. So it gives United loads of options. And it's something that gives them far more balance than this 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 that just has killed Mourinho, it killed Van Gaal. Um uh, and it's something I hope we see more of. But with Van de Beek, I'm not too concerned yet. If Cameos have been very good, I think he's he takes a lot more care on the ball than some of the other attacking midfielders for United at the moment. Fernandez is very kind of hit and miss in terms of the amount of passes he tries and the range of passing. But I think because he gives United so much that they didn't have before he arrived, I think he has to keep playing. So I think what's killing United actually is the fact that they don't have the five subs this year that they did post-lockdown. And I think that will hurt a lot of teams as well, Liverpool as well. I mean, we saw them starting with the four attackers um, in their match just because you can't rely on your bench as much. So if United did have the five subs uh, like they do now in Italy and Spain still, it would have been um, it would have been very helpful for Van de Beek. But he was brought in to give United depth and that's what he's done from at the moment and his performances when he has played has been very good but it would be good to see him start a big game Phil um, kind of every so everyone every time um, Liverpool have a bad result there suddenly seems to be a little bit of doom and gloom even though they're level on top of the Premier League table kind of shows where the club's at at the moment um, coming off the really bad result against Villa and then the situation against Everton and Sheffield United gave them a little bit of a scare earlier on um, on Saturday, what did you make of? I suppose first of all the the shape that Klopp went with um, with those four attackers and Diogo Jota coming in uh, to the front line, um, and secondly the centre half partnership. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of attention on on Joe Gomez and Fabinho. Um, you know, d- d- seemed to did do well against Ajax last weekend, um, and they followed that up now with a, another decent performance against against Sheffield United. Yeah, I, I thought overall, and as the game went on, that, that partnership specifically and the team generally kind of grew into things a little bit. Um, I definitely think McBurney and surprisingly Brewster gave them a bit of trouble when the ball went direct. Um, that's the sort of trouble that Virgil van Dijk basically eliminates from a team because uh, teams don't tend to try going direct uh, when van Dijk is there because they know it's pretty pointless, whereas now teams are kind of giving it a bit of a go um, and it seemed early on definitely to cause Gomez specifically problems. He got beaten by, by Ryan Brewster from the side header. He was fully on his tracks. Um, 2 3 1 shape. I like it in an offensive sense because I thought um, like Fabino probably needs a bit of a break from like for the last whatever year, 18 months probably. His goal return hasn't been sufficient to even learn for everything else that he does to the team. So adding another attacker into the mix probably, probably helps. Helps there and he ended up scoring anyway. I thought John had picked up some great uh, positions. But what happens when Van Dijk isn't there, uh, and you know, I hate talking about him not being there, but he's been such an important part of this Liverpool team. If the if uh, teams break the press or bypass the press and Liverpool put on with the front four, it's, a, it's all of a sudden quite open with just the two holders and no Van Dijk. It just feels a little less stable. And I thought that happened a good bit in the first half, especially when Liverpool's accuracy wasn't kind of there. Um, but like you mentioned at the start of the podcast this weekend was kind of a return back to normality this game actually felt quite a lot like last 
probably not always hitting the heights, but toughed it out. And after a chance, really, not a great one. Um, so I thought Liverpool in the end toughed it out were probably themes in the game. Uh, and it felt quite what they were doing last season, beating teams like Brighton 2 1 and Anfield, things like that. And um, so, in a week, turned to normal for the first time. This felt very much like uh, a Liverpool from last season. In the Man City then picked up a pretty poor result by their standards against West Ham. And West Ham are kind of a bit of a tricky side this year. I've seen them a couple of times now, and obviously the, the comeback against Spurs, but. They were really impressive against Leicester as well um, and Wolves earlier on in the season. And, you know, I think they're kind of a side that could pop up and, and on any day and get results. Um, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of doom and gloom around Man City when they're getting those kind of results. But now the news today with Aguero out for a, an extended period of time, um, is, is there extra concern now around City? I mean, they scored a goal against West Ham, one goal against Arsenal, another goal against Leeds. They haven't really been shooting the lights out. Are they at risk of kind of slipping into a, a bit of a, a bit of a funk there in, in terms of being in the title race? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this when we did our kind of city piece a few weeks ago on the pod, saying they didn't really look to bring in a backup striker mm-hmm. and a different type of striker to Aguero and Jesus, which really surprised us at the time. And I think that's starting to hurt them now. I mean, they brought in Ferran Torres, even though they had a lot of options already on the wings. Um, and now we're probably going to see Phil Foden play a very advanced false 10 role, I'd imagine, in the next few weeks to kind of cover the lack of striker. Um, so, yeah, I think it is a bit of a concern. Like, uh, not even that, but a lot of their most important players after losing, obviously, David Silva in particular, seem to be out of form as well. Fernandinho has struggled at the start of the season. Rodri is doing okay. Bernardo Silva seems to be well off the pace at the moment and is in and out of the side. Um, so you're very reliant really on Mares, Sterling um, and De Bruyne obviously will be coming back, you'd imagine, after making the cameo at the weekend. But I, I just don't see where where the bundles of goals that we expect from them are going to come from, really. They look to see, seem to be just be struggling all the time, even against Arsenal um, in the 1-0 win. It was very laboured. Um, and again, this goes back to what we've discussed about with Pep before. I mean, he does have a shelf life in terms of how exhausting it can be to play for him. And I felt last season and now with this season, they are looking really, really tired and jaded and they just don't seem to have the energy and the press that they used to have. Um, and like you said, they're coming up against teams now that in the past you would have expected them to, to be. I mean, West Ham, they're OK on the day, but, you know, Rako from Antonio. But I mean, they kind of, as West Ham do, set their stall out. Um and City really struggled, to be honest. Um, and it was only when they did bring Foden on, who really surely has to be starting uh, over, you know, Gundogan in particular. Um, you'd imagine um, that we'll see more of that going forward. But yeah, it, it is a real struggle for them. And, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. I mean, Aguero still is a huge loss. Um, and I just don't think they're in enough form at the moment, although Cancelo has played well in the last few weeks, Walker has looked a little bit like his own self again, and Ruben Diaz has started well, I think. So the back four actually looks in better shape than it did last season, but then going forward, they just don't seem to have that balance that they used to have. But with De Bruyne coming back, you know, he could still get them over the line in 80% of their matches, but um, there's just a lot of unnecessary pressure on him at the moment um, that there wouldn't have been before. This is a 12-month problem for City. I mean, they lost as many games as Wolves lost last season. Uh, They might have won 26 games in the league, but they lost nine. 
last year. Like they weren't Liverpool being so good last year obscured how average and I say average in a way that still means like quite good in league winning terms. But like compared to their middle two seasons under Pep, City were really average last season. And it's continued into this. I know we're only they're only five games in. We're six games into the season. They're only five in. But like and like Enda says, the worrying thing for me is they've kind of looked like they're getting better at the thing that they really struggled at last season in defense. But now the, the attack is blunt. And so this is a new problem for Guardiola. I mean, I could nearly be okay with if uh, John Stones is at the back dropping triangles, but it actually relatively sorted that out. This this is a new problem for them. And um, so like. I mean, City are too good a team. Like, they're still a part of me that wouldn't be surprised if they rattled off 12 wins in a row. But I don't know how much longer this average form can go on before we actually have to start thinking that City are diminished from what they were. That still makes them a really good team. They're just not the 100 point that they were in Guardiola the middle two seasons. Yeah, I mean, they play actually Liverpool and Spurs in November um, and then they're away to Sheffield United. They have to go to Olympiacos. Um, so they've Porto at the start of December. So, you know, if if the fixtures list had been okay to them, I think, yeah, as you said, Phil, they would rattle off still probably eight or nine wins in the next two months. But I just think the fixtures are going to gain on them too fast. Um, and I just don't think they're going to be able to keep up. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they manage this and really how... Guardiola, I mean, he, he just looks so frustrated and jaded at the moment, which is understandable when you coach at the intensity that he has anyway. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised um, if he ends up in New York on another sabbatical pretty soon, because I think even for himself, you know, he he, he has a shelf life. Obviously, his mum passed away in the summer, which we should acknowledge due to COVID. So, I mean, that's that's got to take its toll on anybody. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all kind of piling up a bit when... After Mourinho's second season at United, his dad actually passed away. And I felt, would we see a, a different and more moody Jose Mourinho? And ultimately, that's what we got, even by his standards. So, you know, you've got to be fair as well. I mean, personal life does come into things. Um, but I, I think it's just going to get very, very difficult for City if, if these injuries keep happening. Speaking about Mourinho then, um, in the uh, Spurs are trucking along nicely there. Um, in, in, a couple of good results and picking up that one nil winning away to Burnley on Monday night. Um, I saw a stat on, on Twitter that um, Paul Scholes and Jebby Alonso never assisted more than seven goals in a, in a season and Kane already has eight in, in six yeah. games, which is outrageous. Um, Phil, with Kane and Son in that kind of form and Bale obviously to to get up to speed in terms of his fitness and, and, and be integrated into the side. I mean, you've, you've three fairly decent players that are going to keep uh, Spurs within a shout. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of had uh, a, a bit of a chat about them a couple of weeks ago here because they just looked like an interesting side. Um, we weren't quite sure what way they were going to shape up. Kind of a mix of these new players and, and the squad that's been there under Pochettino, kind of a really gradual revolution under Jose as opposed to Anything kind of sweeping, and um, they might benefit. Like Endo was kind of alluding to earlier, from like kind of a team that can bring any consistency to bear this season. They might benefit from being a relatively consistent team with a little bit of newness with Bale uh, and Reggion mixed in there. And um, like, I mean, part of me thinks it's hard to see Jose Mourinho win the league in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, and just because of, of the way the game seems to have gone by him. But they're they're going to. 
like kind of West Ham game aside, which was a bit mad, and they do kind of have a little bit of an implosion in them. Like you said, it's such a potent pair in Kane and Son. And I think uh, I saw a thing today that only Drogba and Lampard have assisted each other more in Premier League history than Son and Kane, which is, which is saying something. Um, they've got such a potent pair there. And like you said, they've got support like from the bench and fail. They don't have a terrible um, foundation. It's a, it is a little rickety, like we talked about the West Ham draw last week. Um, they're an interesting side. Part of me just thinks that the, the ship has sailed for them when they didn't bring bring home any silver under potch. But I mean, this season is mad enough, and if they if they can show that side that showed against Burnley often enough, uh, they they could be in the in the conversation. All right. Yeah, I suppose their home form will probably be the concern only at the mm. moment. I mean, mm. two two draws and a defeat against um, Everton, West Ham, and Newcastle. So I mean, they would have at least been hoping for seven points from those three games. So, um, you know, I, I feel like Spurs are are the, the biggest team at the moment where we all get a bit bipolar. Like, every time I see them each week, I think these could win the league and then you see them another week and <laughs> convince yourself that they won't, you know? But, I mean, the squad is looking really strong now. I mean, Bergwin and Ali weren't even in the uh, subs bench last night. Um, and obviously Bale and Vinicius on the bench. Reguan was on the bench as well. Um, so they had a good night um, and it was one of those type of games that you do need to win if you do want to be in consideration to win the league um, so I think they're going in the right direction on, on paper they've probably got the strongest and most consistent squad um, certainly the most cons- consistent front pair in, in, in mm. coming game um, but again you would be a bit worried about the schedule um, obviously Europa League is even more grueling than, than the Champions League although like you said the squad could take care of that but um, it's still a lot of travelling and a lot of effort um, to put into the Europa League to actually be consistent. If you look down the years, a lot of top teams have struggled with Europa League campaigns just because it's quite draining. Um, but but for now, I think they're heading in the right direction, worryingly, um, under Jose. So um, it'll be interesting to see. They've got some big games coming up in November. Like we said, they've got to play Man City as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Jose... Uh, adopts for those matches because in fairness to him at Old Trafford you know starting Ori at right back to take advantage of Greenwood not covering was a big move um, and it paid advantage um, so if he can make a few more big more offensive calls like that this season I think you know they could be one to really watch out for for Liverpool in particular and depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is no Barcelona. It's an office small team. Have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're joined by Punnett Arena writer and friend of the show, Oshin McKearns. Hope you're well, Oshin. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, all good. So when we usually have you on, it's to talk about how Ireland are going and 
that generally doesn't really make more make for a the most positive of conversation. So <laughs> it must be a nice change of pace to, to get you on talking about Leeds. It is, yeah, but I mean, uh, I'm not used to having positive conversations about Leeds. To be fair, so um, this this last couple of years have changed it a little bit, but uh, no, it's a nice change of tack. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I suppose it's fair to say that. This has been down to one man and what Bielsa has done with the team over the past couple of years. So before we get into kind of the specifics around this season, can you tell us a little bit about what Bielsa has done to get to this point of being back in the Premier League? Yeah, it, it's unbelievable, really. I don't think it can be it can't be underestimated how much work he's put in at that club and how well, how, how he's transformed everything, really. I mean, before he took over, Leeds had kind of, they nearly turned into a perennial mid-table championship club. Which, when you think about them, obviously in the early 2000s and the 90s and stuff like that, they were Champions League contenders. Um, but I mean, it just the last 10, 15 years or so, I just felt like it was the return to the Premier League was never coming, and they tried so many different managers and they just didn't work. And then Bielsa was kind of this wild card pick, and I think that the owners and, and the manager director spoke about before they didn't think they were going to get him. Eventually, they did get him, and since he's come in, I mean, from day one, he changed everything. He changed the philosophy there, really. Um, I remember their first game of the season against Stoke City two two years ago. It was his first game. And Stoke had signed a lot of good players that 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 summer and they'd only just come down from the Premier League. And I remember thinking this is this Stoke City team is serious and Leeds just played them off the park and it was it was the best I'd seen Leeds play. It could it could have been the best I'd seen Leeds play at that point in my entire like life watching them. And I just couldn't get over how quick he changed it. And just from there, I mean they kicked on, but yeah, what he's what he's done that what what I love about him, I think more than anything, is the fact that he's developed and improved players that weren't necessarily. I mean, they were they were okay championship players, but what he's done is he, he's 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 stuck with them, he's improved them, he's shown, he's told them where they can improve, and he's worked with them, him and his coaching staff, and he's got players like Luke Ayling, Stuart Dallas, Calvin Phillips, who Calvin Phillips was no no manager knew where to play Calvin Phillips before Marcelo Bielsa came in. Bielsa came in first game and told him, you're going to be a central defensive midfielder. And, I mean, look look where his career has gone from there. He's now a 30-40 million pound player and full-on international. So, yeah, I think what the best thing that Bielsa has done is he's developed, he, he's worked with what he has and he's developed what he has. And, I mean, everyone's kind of seen it now, how, how good they are to watch and how uh, how Bielsa's philosophy of football has kind of mm-hmm. has transformed the club that, that was in, in dire, dire need of something. It needed, Leeds needed this, like Leeds needed the spark. And thankfully, yeah, it's been Bielsa, and long may it continue. I think all Leeds fans will be thinking the same thing. The return to the top tier, as it's been a long time coming, obviously. And I suppose with it being under Bielsa, you know, he's he's kind of entered the mainstream for the first time. Certainly in terms of you know that English football bubble that we all tend to live in. What's it like, you know, kind of having a coach with this much worldwide acclaim? Uh, you know, such huge, um, you know, reputation in, in, in coaching standards. Like, and now he's under that kind of Premier League microscope. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, to be fair, I was the same. I, I was, I mean, I was aware of who Marcelo Bielsa was before he came to Leeds, but I wasn't, I wasn't overly familiar with his work around like that. And I think the years of kind of watching Leeds United under the likes of Neil Warnock, Steve Evans, managers like that, I'd kind of become desensitised to a new manager coming in at Leeds. It just got to the stage whereby I kind of, I mean, you hear about this, like the, the kind of leads, the leads default mindset is it'll go wrong. And the first time I remember hearing the Bielsa rumors, and everyone was like, "Wow, that would be a serious coup for Leeds!" Like, look what he's done with Athletic Bilbao, Argentina. And my first initial thought was, "Well, there's no way this will work." You know what I mean? It's just, well, this is just Leeds United. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But uh, obviously, it did work out, and, and uh, 
it's still working out. But yeah, I mean, it's you, you kind of see it on like you, you see it on a as you said on like an international basis because like I mean even on Twitter you see Argentinian uh, supporters and stuff like that always tweeting about him. I think Newell's All Boys is all his first club. They always constantly tweet about Bielsa and Leeds. Um, so yeah, it's 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 weird nearly for for Leeds to be back in that in that spotlight where they've been out of for so long. I mean, um, and it's great to see it's great to see that there's kind of a new set of fans, not Leeds fans now, just football fans who are kind of getting to experience Bielsa's Bielsa's football. And I think even even fans of other clubs are starting to appreciate what he can do at the highest level. Because as you said, Kevin, like it's it's not like we were kind of we weren't really familiar with this. I mean, I, yeah. I know people kind of spoke about the, the, the most well-known, I think, before this was that Bill Bell game in the Europa League where um, they defeated United. I think Alex Ferguson was raving about their style of play. They were gung-ho. They went for it. Um, they ended up losing in the final, but I think that was kind of the, on people's only real kind of, the, the casual fan maybe, only real um, exposure to Bielsa. But now, <laughs> I think everyone knows who he is now and, um, they're gonna. It, it'll continue like this throughout the season. And, and one of the worst things, one of the things I dislike when pundits say is that, oh, they they can't play like this for the rest of the season, or they'll burn out, or Bielsa's teams generally tend to fall. But I mean, they didn't show that last season. And I know the season before that they lost in the in the playoff semi final, but I don't think that was a case of them burning out. Um, so I think yeah. So just to go back to your original question, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to have a manager mm. that is kind of. Everything he does is it seems like it's the right way of doing it as well. Like you know what I mean? There's no there's a lot of the managerial game, I mean there's a lot of like the managerial roundabout or um yes, the, the managerial roundabout like it comes and goes and there's a lot of kind of you've got your Mourinho's, the cynical Mourinho and you've got your mind game and stuff like that. But Bielsa is just he's I suppose I suppose the purest thing in football that I kind of think I've ever seen. Mm. Well, Shane, you mentioned the improvement in, in a lot of the players and Calvin yeah. Phillips in particular, but Jack Harrison is one for me who, who I probably find the most interesting considering he came from MLS to Middlesbrough, really didn't get any sort of progressional minutes under Tony Pulis. I mean, what was it even about him that made Leeds kind of take a punt and how has Bielsa in particular gotten the best out of him? Because he's yeah, somebody who really looks the part now. Yeah, well, you see, the thing is with, with Bielsa, he kind of, Bielsa and his, it's Victor Orta, who's the director of football and their scouts, they will kind of identify a lot of players in that kind of vein, whereby I think Ben White's another one where no one had kind of really thought much about Ben White. No one kind of had kind of heard about him. And Leeds signed him, made a big play for him, and he had a great season last season. Back to the Harrison point, um, he's one of those players that I think Bielsa saw that he could improve because Harrison has improved season on season. When he first came to Leeds, he was good, but he, I, I wouldn't have called him one of Leeds' better players. Or, I mean, he kind of... He was just—he he was very inconsistent. I think would be the best way to put it. And then last season, then he added a lot more to his game. He added more assists, more goals. And now this season, he seems to be thriving at, at a higher level. And I think next season again, I think he'll continue to improve. And I think, I think what Bielsa probably saw in him was a player who had that raw talent that he could kind of mould. And that with in his style, Harrison's a very direct player. He's very strong. He's probably got one of the best first touches I've ever seen. He takes the ball down so well from from long balls and stuff like that. So I think what Bielsa probably saw and the coaching staff probably saw with Harrison was something that they could mould into. Maybe they thought of him as a long-term project because I know they've had him now for, this will be his third season and he's still on loan. Like, so they haven't actually they haven't actually signed him permanently from City. But yeah, I think they, they probably saw a player that they could mould um, and they had all the raw talent and the raw attributes, but they just needed to kind of, needed to be told how to do it or to kind of get a little bit more consistency in his game. 
Oshin, there's um, another player who's obviously caught the eye this year and um, has been Patrick Bamford, uh, kind of yeah. nearly a, a much maligned figure in in the championship over the last couple of years. And uh, any time he's gotten that go in the Premier League, I mean, he's, somehow he's 27. I mean, he seems like yeah. he should be still an under 21 player, but he's actually 27. And um, it turns out all they needed to do to light a fire on him was sign a 30 million pound or 30 euro, uh, 30 million euro player from Valencia. And um, how's yeah. he? What's diff- what's been different for Bamford this year compared to other years when people were worried that he didn't actually have what it took to carry this Leeds team as he might be this year? Yeah, I think the difference is, I, I think the fact that, I mean, over the last couple of seasons, Marcelo Bielsa believes in him. Like, he really, really, he's his number nine. And even when Rodrigo was signed, you said they're 30 million. I think Rodrigo was never signed to be a number nine. He was always signed to kind of be half Bamford. And we saw it last season as well. Um, lead side Eddie Kedia on loan from Arsenal and Kedia played he came on a few games and he scored quite a bit I think he scored 4 or 5 from the bench and there was talk um, a lot of fans were pushing a lot of the media were pushing for Kedia to start ahead of Bamford but Bielsa said no Bamford's my number 9 and he stuck with him and he stuck with him and last season he scored I think 15, 14 or 15 goals but the chances he missed he probably he missed a lot more chances he, he should have had at least 25 to 30 goals when you consider the amount of chances that this Leeds team create. And now it's, a, it's, it's just the case that he's been more efficient. I think it was a huge, huge boost to get him that goal against Liverpool. I think, I know, obviously, it was a Van Dijk mistake. But I think the fact that he scored that will have given him a huge bit of confidence because he's, he's quite a confidence, one of those strikers who, who needs that kind of... I think he needs more of an arm around him than he does uh, a kick up, kick up the arse, to be fair. But, um, yeah, I think that goal would have done him the world of good. I think... I always thought that he was the kind of player who, last season especially, who, if Leeds created one chance, he'd score one goal. But if Leeds created 20 chances, he'd only score one goal still. I'd, I always thought he was kind of, he was weirdly inefficient, but he could be efficient. And I think that's what he's shown this season. But I think as a whole, it's just the fact that Marcelo Bielsa believes in him so much. And now he's finally getting his chance. He obviously had a couple of stints in the Premier League before, but yeah, he wasn't probably ready. Um, and now, yeah, he's, he's got that got that belief all the he's a perfect number nine though for that team because the work rate he does is unbelievable people don't see that and, and I know obviously his goals are going to grab the headlines but the work he does off the ball the running he does he must be one of the fittest players in that Leeds team which is really saying something so yeah he's just turned into a, a, a brilliant all-round striker under Marcelo Bielsa and I think Bielsa is pretty much essentially the prime reason for that Oshin we've heard about famous training techniques from many different managers but uh Something that we hear a lot about in the last sort of 12 months or so is murder ball. Uh, yeah. So much so that apparently a lot of the Leeds players, uh, the internationals have tried to get their own national teams to train this way. Can you explain for anybody who mightn't be aware of what exactly this entails and why yeah. it has been so effective? Yeah, murder ball. I actually don't know who coined the phrase murder ball. It's a good one. I don't think it, I wouldn't say it was, it was Bielsa now. But um, yeah, so murder ball is basically, I think they do it every Wednesday and it's 11 on 11. And uh, the whole idea of it is it's a full game, a full 90 minutes, but the ball never goes out of play. And when it does, like, so, well, the ball does go out of play, but as soon as it goes out of play, there's, there's, the coaches are on the sidelines with the ball in their hands. The, the game essentially never stops. So it's 90 minutes of just full-on action. Like, there's no breaks, no no throw. The ball goes out, it doesn't get thrown. It gets thrown back in by the coach, you know what I mean? So um, it's just, yeah, it's so full-on. And a lot of the players, I think it was Click, who's, Mateus Click, who spoke about it, um, and maybe Jack Harrison as well, they both kind of said that. It's so intense that come Saturday, it kind of the players feel like there's a there's a weight lifted off their shoulders when they're playing the actual game because it's nowhere near as intense as the murder ball sessions are. Um, and I'd say I've I've heard a good few players say that it was very very hard to get used to, but once they kind of got used to it, 
it, it completely changed so many players' fitness levels. And you saw it against Aston Villa. And they were going, going home until mm. the 90th minute. I think they were 3-0 up and it was the 94th minute. And there was that clip that kind of went, that went a little bit viral on Twitter whereby I think there was like seven players rushing into the box or on the attack when they were 3-0 up. And I've seen a lot of opposition fans say like how how fit the team is. But it, that, that murder ball, it really does... Uh, it sounds it sounds awful to be fair. I don't think I'd like to participate in myself, but it sounds like it does a trick. And I've heard of, I've heard a few. I actually saw a few Villa fans kind of being like, well, "Why don't why don't we do that? Or why doesn't every team incorporate that?" But probably easier said easier said than done. But listen, it sounds like uh, it, it's it's effective. So that's that's the main thing. Oh, Sheen, um, a little bit earlier on in the season, I read a stat that um, Calvin Phillips is the first uh England international from Leeds since Alan Smith, which kind of goes to show the the chasm uh, at Leeds over the past decade or more. Yeah. Um you know, I, ha- I haven't been too familiar with him and I actually taught against Liverpool earlier on the season. He was one of the best players on the field. He looked really, really impressive. Um what 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 does he bring to the game? Because I think a lot of people have the kind of the opinion of him that he's kind of an attacking um number ten, maybe kind of is it yeah. stringing all these you know, attacks together, but he, he's a little bit deeper, and and Southgate seems to uh, have warmed him, and is already kind of bringing him into the to fold at England. Yeah, I suppose he's the kind of metronome that really keeps the Leeds team ticking. I, mean, I know they they beat Villa without him um, the other day, but even in the first half, it was clear that everything kind of goes through Phillips. And when the defenders push out, when Robin Cock and uh, Liam Cooper push out, they look for Phillips as the first ball they look for. It'll either be wider to look for Phillips through the centre. And Phillips wasn't there against Villa. And you could see that there was kind of, Cock was coming out of, of, of the defence and was looking around. He was like, where is, you know, I kind of need someone to come into this position and play that one. The Phillips will always be there. But yeah, Phillips is a holder now. I mean, when he first, when he was at Leeds at the start before Bielsa, no manager kind of knew what to really do with him. He played, as, a, as, the, as you said there, he kind of was a bit of a 10. He played in like a bit of an 8 position, but he was kind of a floater. He wasn't really, he didn't have a defined position. He was thrown kind of wide. He was thrown wherever anyone could try to really put him. And from day one, Bielsa said to Phillips, this is the position you're going to play. And I remember watching an interview with Phillips and he said he wasn't even sure if he could do it himself. And Bielsa said, it doesn't matter if you can do it now, you're going to be able to do it. You'll learn how to do it. And I think that's a kind of belief that he brings to, as I said, to Bamford and to, to a player like Phillips to kind of to tell him that this is going to be his role. And he's really flourished in that. I mean, as you said, England international now, Southgate kind of seems to have taken a bit of a shine to him. I know he's, he's won a couple of caps, but... Um, yeah, he's been brilliant. He's 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 a crucial part of, of the, the the lead starting eleven. And, and the worrying thing is that I know he's out now for six weeks, or well, it'll be five weeks now. But he's the kind of player that leads don't have a direct replacement for, and that was kind of an issue a little bit as well in the championship. And I think that's probably why they were kind of in the in the in the the market for maybe another midfielder um, in the transfer window. But yeah, he's an exceptional player, and um, He's, he's, he's definitely he's, he's probably Leeds most he's probably Leeds most important player um, I think just in in the sense that he's the way he plays is so unique to the squad they just don't have anyone else who can do that at the moment. Oshin, you mentioned a little earlier your frustration about kind of that, the narrative around um, burnout under Bales and that his style of play could tend to lead teams to collapse a little bit. But I suppose one thing we can't explain time so far with Leeds he's only been signing one year rolling contracts. Um, yeah. n- never given any indication he's going to walk away, but always keeping himself open to the possibility, or rather than rather than tying himself down, it's going to be year to year thing. Um, what do you think are the Leeds' long term uh, prospects of of keeping Bielsa at the club? And uh, kind of interestingly for me, do you think that if and when Bielsa does walk away, and um, the club has become so ingrained to his way of working 
think that it might take a little while to retune to somebody else. Yeah, definitely. That's an interesting question for sure. I just think to to suppose to start with that point. Um, yeah, I think all Leeds fans are kind of dreading a little bit that day when it does end. I mean, again, it's that kind of the, the Leeds pessimism that even though it's going so well, there's kind of that people see in the horizon that's not going to last forever. But listen, I think I, I would have thought before that the idea was to kind of, because Bielsa has so many assistants. I think he has about four or five. You do see them on the touchline and in the technical area, roaring and running around and stuff like that. They're always getting there. The referees always tell them off. But I would have said that the idea was kind of to to maybe have someone like Carlos Corberan, who's the now the, the Huddersfield manager. And maybe it could still be a long-term plan, but I would have said that the idea was to kind of, if Bielsa was to step away, um, would be to kind of maybe push someone up as, as who knows the style, who's kind of worked under Bielsa so much, that it would be maybe a, a slightly natural um, transition into the same style of play, that, uh, everything essentially the same, but a different man in charge. Um, yeah. In terms of Bielsa staying, yeah, the rolling contract, obviously that, that kind of gives Leeds fans nightmares, I suppose, and it has done since the very start, <laughs> um, really, to be honest with you. But I think he, he didn't even sign the contract. It was into, God, it was it was actually quite late. Um, yeah. He was quite late signing the one this year, I know. But uh, I think you mentioned during the week that he... Um, it was after just the game, wasn't it? Sorry? Didn't, didn't I think it was after the Liverpool game, yeah, wasn't it? I think it was. It was around then, yeah. So that obviously worried Leeds fans, but I think it was just a case of I, I don't know. Bielsa, he's he's not called a logo for nothing. So I'd say it was just one of his little things. But um, <laughs> yeah, in terms of in terms of staying on longer, I mean, he has mentioned. He only mentioned actually this week. I think it was in the in a, the Yorkshire Evening Post had it that he's happy just because he he has a one year contract doesn't necessarily mean he'll only stay for the year. And obviously we saw that before, but he said it again. Um, this week that he's happy living in Leeds I know he likes the city he, it kind of suits him a little bit um, because that's what you get when you get when you, when you, when you bring Bielsa to the team you, he has to buy into everything every single part and, and, and vice versa like the club has to buy into him he has to buy into the club he has to buy into the city and the city has to buy into him as well so it's when you get Bielsa you get a lot and that's probably why it didn't necessarily work out with teams like Lille um, didn't work out from Lazio. He, I know he only stayed a couple of. I think he stayed like three days in Lazio. <laughs> there was issues over uh, transfer targets and things like that. But you, but but that's that's Bielsa in a nutshell because they didn't buy into him. They didn't give him. You need to kind of give him the keys to the castle. And I think a lot of kind of a lot of owners will see that. A lot of directors football will see that as a huge risk. And maybe it is a huge risk. But Victor Orta and Adrian Rodriguez didn't see that as a risk. They saw that as an investment. And like it's an investment that's paid off now. Um, but yeah, I think I think he'll probably stay. I think obviously he'll stay this season. I think, barring a disaster, he probably stays next season. And then I mean that's what four or five years. Like that's in management, that's a long time. So mm. after that, who knows? But I think I think uh, safe to say we have him for at least the foreseeable future. So that's mm. good. It's five five years is a long time in uh, in Bielsa speak anyway. Yeah. Um, I suppose you know it's been a really good start of the season. Um, the win against Villa was, was was really, really impressive. And it might have altered the expectations slightly. And obviously, we're only six games in. But I suppose, what are your kind of bottom and high expectations or kind of hopes uh, for the rest of the season? Yeah, I think I probably I mean, bottom expectations, I suppose. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of look past 40 points. You know what I mean? I know it's the old mm. cliche of 40 points to keep you up. But like, when you consider how long it took to get here and how hard it was to get here to... To kind of to to even think about getting relegated again and going back to the, the championship is I don't even want to think about it. Like I think Leeds, all Leeds fans are the exact same. But but I suppose um, 
yeah, judging by the start of the season, I mean, before this, I, I always felt like this Leeds team would almost suit the Premier League. Maybe not all things, but suit the Premier League more than they suited the Championship because the Championship is still quite a robust league. And I know now the quality of it is a lot better than it used to be, but there are a lot of teams that will go long ball, that will disrupt. And the thing with the Championship as well is like this, now this might be a little bit biased coming from a Leeds fan, but it, it felt as though a lot of teams would up their game against Leeds because it was probably the biggest game of the season in terms of league games and stuff like that. So, so you felt like every game, every team was going out to to match Leeds or to, to kind of get a scalp in Leeds. And it's not the case now in the Premier League because obviously there's huge clubs in the Premier League. So the dynamic is a lot different. So I think in terms of, yeah, sorry, to go back to your original question, in terms of uh, expectations, I think I, I think top half, I mean, it's been a mad season. It's been a mad start to the season. So it kind of seems like if ever there was a, a time for Leeds to kind of push in around top eight, top six, it might be this one. Now that's probably asking a little bit too much because, um, I mean, there are still kind of, there are still flaws, I think, in, in, in the team. Like a, you get a, you get Leeds against a counter-attacking team. Like I'm actually just just looking at the table. There are certain teams on, like I'm, I'm not necessarily looking forward to playing Tottenham because I think Kane and so on, that ball over the top could absolutely kill Leeds. Like, um, Leicester not looking forward to that game Jamie Vardy on top as well so there's certain there's certain teams that I'm interested in seeing Leeds against and conversely I'm interested to see them against the likes of Burnley and maybe Newcastle a more uh, more pragmatic team but no I think I think top half would probably be would be realistic and I think God the Leeds fans will bite your hand off for a top half finish for sure now Brilliant stuff we'll, uh, we'll be sure to keep a close eye on Bielsa this season and I'm no doubt he'll uh, He'll make it really interesting to follow. Uh, thanks very much for joining, Oshin. No problem. Cheers, lads. Thanks for having me. We're on with Dylan O'Connell, sports writer and reporter with Extra Time, Dari, amongst others. And this week, unfortunately, a despondent Corkman. I hope you're coming to terms with relegation there, Dylan. It's strange. Um, between the war of the economy after tanking, uh, Cork City are now in the first division. This feels very like 2010. <laughs> so, so I'm still getting used to like, a lot of stuff at the moment, what's, what's going on in the world. So I feel like at least I lived through the last 2010, so I can kind of have that to go off of. <laughs> um, I suppose, like you said, it's been a pretty mad League of Ireland season as Irish football goes. Um Covid struck very early on, and we eventually got round to a kind of a condensed eighteen-game calendar, which has kind of flown by. Really, um, Shamrock Rovers have won with a couple of games to spare. Then Dundalk have had a dreadful campaign, at least domestically by by their standards, and everyone else has been fairly inconsistent. And really, kind of no one has come anywhere near close to to laying a glove on Rovers. I suppose starting at the bottom, sadly for in Cork City's case, can you? I suppose tell us a little bit about the problems the club have faced over the past while, starting really with the financial difficulties, even though they've been in Europe as recently as 2017. It, it's supposed to start with Cork. Like, it's quite an interesting one because I, I did a piece that for like I did a piece for extra time on Sunday where I kind of I broke down like different strands of, of what happened with Cork. But like you could look at it from a purely financial sense, or you could look at it through a football sense. But like I suppose it's best to start with the start of when City won the league. They lost Sean Maguire. Once they lost Sean Maguire, it goes straight up. And after he left the club in the second half of 2017, they lost to Bohemians. They lost to Shamrock Rovers. They lost to St. Pat's. They lost to Sligo. It was like the form was so good, it, you couldn't keep that up. 
Like they was they won like twenty three games twenty three out of twenty four games. It was one of the best starts in the history of the League of Ireland. And in twenty eighteen, I Coffee told me himself they rejected the whole team with with Sean McGuire gone. They brought in Graham Cummins. They switched it to I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2017-18 with Liverpool, they had like a four-man attack when they had like Coutinho, uh, Firmino forward, mm. right wing Salah, left wing Mane, Cork City tried to yeah. do something like that with a four-man attack, but like Graham Cummins up, front, uh, up top, on the right was Shepard, on the left was Kieran Sadlier, and playing in behind was Barry McNamee, but there was a lot of chopping and change in the early 2017, or 2018, sorry, the defending champions, where like there was the, the immediate bounce of that they are the champions, that fell away, gold straight up. And then if there's ever a moment which I think kind of just a week or time that kind of sums up how forced the change of the club, they played Dundalk up in Oriel Park and they conceded a 92nd minute own goal through Sean McLaughlin. Through no fault of his own, the ball like hit his face and went in. And a week later, they played Sean McLaughlin and turned across. And in that game, Kieran Sadler missed a penalty. Uh, Gavin Bazzoni, who's now at Manchester City, saved the penalty. And I think it, there was a psychological kind of like come down to the fact that after that John McGrover's game, there were four points behind Dundalk in the title race. And it was the first time they'd actually slipped up. They entered the Champions League and got a horrible draw, which was Legi Warsaw. They got like an 800,000 euro prize money from entering the Champions League alone, which was fantastic. So they lost 1-0 home to John McGrover's. They lost 3-0 away in Warsaw. They entered back into the Europa League. There was a lot of kind of buzz around the city of like, we want to get the Europa League playoff round. The Echo had an article about where would Cork City play the playoff round for the Europa League? Would it play in Limerick? Would it play in Cork? There was a kind of sense of the club wanted Europe. We all thought that, look, you have to be Rosenberg and playoff round of the Europa League. We got beat. We, sorry, as a Cork first, you tend to say that, but City got beaten 2-0 uh, at home, 3-0 uh, away. They went back in, into the league and there was a sense of anti-climax that summer around the, after Europe. So they they drew one off the St. Patrick's Athletic. They lost two one to Sligo Rovers. They were beaten four two to Bohemians in Daly Mount Park, which was the game with Damien Delaney's own goal. And then they got beaten one 0 at home to Dundalk uh, through Chris Shields' goal. And Dundalk's lead grew. Dundalk eventually won were crown champions. But two weeks later, it was announced before the twenty eighteen Cup final that they'd cut back the budget by three hundred thousand euro because of they weren't in the Champions League in 2019. Coffee always spoke, spoke about how 2019 would be a transition season of bringing youth players through, and but the City would still compete. City started off the season with a glimmer of promise in 2019. Uh, Darrell Connor was an early fan favourite to his reforms in the President's Cup final, which they lost to Dundalk. But there were signs of promise, but there was also kind of... There was the they lacked consistency, like they beat Van Harps, they beat Sligo Rovers, but they also lost the same Pats, they lost the Dundalk. Same uh, Shamrock Rovers won in Turner's Cross for the first time in in set in six years. Coffee was re, coffee was relieved of his duties. There was a sense of the need to find a winning formula because there was there was a constant chopping change in between the starting 11s. Like I remember at Coffee's last game, uh, City played a 3 5 2. Uh, three five, yeah, three five two, which was Graham Cummins, who's like the stocky forward with Cara Shepherd, the pacey forward, just trying to break balls down. You can run. Coffee was gone. Results still tumbled. They lost four one at home, at home to Derry. They lost away to Shamrock Rovers. 
They drew one all the way to St. Pat's. There was no consistency in their results. They entered Europe. There was the whole fiasco of City could be playing Rangers. They had to play progress near the corn. They lost two nil at home. It was one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a Cork City team. They went away to Luxembourg. I was at the away game in Luxembourg. And they went 2-0 up in, say, 50 minutes and then conceded. Need to score a third, need to score a third goal to go through and away goals. They didn't. They got knocked out of the FA Cup last season to Galway United. That's when, in September, the finance issues hit with the club. When they were hit with the tax bill of €150,000, that was combined with other issues. The club needed to sort that out because they, the club needed to sort that out in order to get a licence for the 2020 League of Ireland Premier Division season. There was kind of a frantic distance out of the club. Uh, what, what are they going to do? They approached the bank. They approached local businesses. 20 local businesses refused to give to help them out financially. So they went to press the North End and to sell the sell-on clauses for Sean McGuire and Alan Brown. Preston agreed to sell them for €199,000. They went back to the FBI with the money. The FBI, the FBI refused. Uh, in the meantime, Neil Fenn had brought in his manager. Neil Fenn was preparing for the 2020 season. And three days before the, game, the first game of the season against Shelburne, uh, they were told, Joe Gamble said this last week in LOI Weekly, that they were told there's a chance this game might not go ahead over the licensing issues. Uh, basically, they pressing up their offer to €450,000. City got the licence, but they're working off a reduced budget this season, the club, because they weren't in Europe. And the squad they was assembled was very mismatched. They couldn't keep players they wanted to keep because of finance issues like Gary Buckley and Conor McCormack. There was a, so the squad they had was either loan players from England, youth players promoted, and players they were able to sign. So, like, City started off the season. They were beaten 1-0 at home to Shells. They were beaten... 6-0 away to Shamrock Rovers, they were beating 3-0 away to Dundalk, but then it emerged that Grovemore Limited, the owners of Preston, were interested in buying Cork City, and which is now leading some things up. Uh, City were poor all season. They were, I suppose the results reflected themselves, even outside COVID, uh, but they were hit with a lot of outside factors. But last month, early this month, uh, Neil Fenn resigned as manager and which everything is kind of accumulating this week with the vote of do the fans fans of group four us who own the club sell the club to uh, Grover Limited the owners of Preston North End for the nominal sum of one euro and for that to pass it needs a 50 plus one percent majority so it has been very interesting times in Cork football It's a bad story over the past couple of years alright um, I suppose you mentioned the Sean McGuire thing, and obviously it was a massive loss. Um, what, what were the finances around his sale? That you know, in addition to the Champions League money or, or the you know the money that came in from UEFA, that has kind of led to the situation where you know Preston are having to bail out um, the club basically. And I mean, it's probably interesting to a lot of people to see Preston come in. Like, what what's their vision for Cork? Like, are they? Are they going to use it as like a, a kind of a feeder club or some sort of an affiliate club for, for League of Ireland players? I know they've obviously they have a couple of Irish lads over there, but like, you know, what they obviously have, want to have some skin in the game here by, by, by investing in Cork like they are. Like, I think that one of the main confusions people have about this is people think the Preston themselves are buying Cork City. It's Grovemore Limited. But like for a business standpoint, especially from Grovemore, they've had a lot of deans in Cork for the last eight years. 
like back in 2012, Graham Cummins signed for Preston from Cork City. Sean McGuire signed. Kevin O'Connor signed. Adam O'Reilly, who was a schoolboy with Remagen Rangers, he signed for Preston. Uh, Adam, who else? Uh, there's another young lad this year. He played for Douglas Hall, went to Cork City. Uh, his name escapes me off the top of my head. Uh, he's an Irish under 18s international player for cities under 17s last year. Uh, that's quite a complex sprinter as well at Leavale Athletics Club. But there has been a lot of comings and goings of players to and back between both clubs in the last, I suppose, eight years. And like with the utmost respect to like the rest of Munster, Cork is a hotbed for footballing talent. Harry Nevin was the player's name. So I feel like what Preston will probably look at as Cork City as being like the, I suppose, the linchpin for like the county of Munster and especially Cork. Like if you look at the moment, you've just in between the Premier League and Championship, you have Kevin Long, Johnny Egan, Adam Ida, uh, Ida, Adam O'Reilly, uh, Alan Brown at Cork City, you have Garrett Morrissey, you have all those players who came out of Cork themselves at Ipswich, you have Aaron Drynan. There's a lot of players who've come from this county in, in suppose, the last eight years. So, like, it feels like a natural thing for a club to try and harness and tr- harness what's going on in Munster. Also, as well, I feel like, from a Preston standpoint, you, you have the owner of Swindon Town, Lee Power, he also owns Waterford, and he has, I suppose he'd probably use Waterford to a similar extent, so they'll want to try and corner the Cork marketplace to themselves, especially with the pool of talent that has come from the Rebel County in the last eight years. Oh, Cueven Keller as well is another name, just came to mind, the goalkeeper for Liverpool, he's another name from Cork. Obviously we have new champions now in Shamrock Rovers, um, very pragmatic set of champions, obviously well-organised, only had the two draws this season. Um, I know they had the big win at the weekend, but obviously a lot of their games um, was just by the odd goal or two uh, and a very steady defence. How do you feel they'll go next season with potentially tough opposition in Europe? I think Rovers are in the best position to retain the title like compared to like the last team to to win the, the league who was in Dundalk. Like, uh, if you just look at the whole Rovers team, they're so settled. Like if you look at they have Alan Manis in goal, you have Joy O'Brien, you have Jack Field. There's such a strong stable. Te- there's a str- such a strong stable team. Stable team there. Also as well, they have the under 19s, 17s, 15s, and 13s. They have a whole youth progression and pathway going up. And I feel like winning the cup last season, it was like winning the cup last year, kind of gave them that like wet their appetite for success. They knew what success meant. They now have the first league title under the under their belt. They're also Shamrock Rovers. They're one of the biggest. They are the biggest club in the country, no matter what way you look about look at it. So like, they have experience in winning titles. There is the brand name around them. They have that swagger about them. For Europe next season, it's I find it very hard to make predictions for Europe because you never know how a League of Ireland club's draw is going to go. Shamrock Rovers could enter the qualifiers next season and get drawn against TNS and have a very nice two uh, nil home, three nil away result, or they'd be drawn against Red Star Belgrade and they're planning for the Europa League. But that's the beauty for Shamrock Rovers next season when they do enter Europe. They will always have that fallback option of the Europa League. But just like looking at the club all around, they're in such a strong and stable position. Even the people behind it, you Stephen Bradley, who's worked at Arsenal, you Stephen McPhail, involved with the club. You have Shane Robinson, who's involved with the academy. You have so much names involved. They have a proper player path to progression in with that as well. So for like next season, when you have Europe comes in, when you have Europa League games, because they're guaranteed an extra four games next year with Champions League and Europa League. 
Jack Byrne gets a lot of the headlines. Do you feel there's anybody else who potentially could be pushing for either an overseas move or, or an international cap? I think Jack Byrne's the main one. Graham Burke were calling him to the air squad. He played for Ireland back in 2018 at friendly against the USA. It was 2019, 2018 at friendly against the USA. I feel like Jack Byrne is a good striking option. Is a good striking option to go back over, but he's he is unknown. I think one of the beauties with this Shamrock Rovers team as well is a lot of the players themselves are very content in playing for Rovers. Like back in 2000, was it was it Jack Byrne gave an interview where he's talked about when he was playing for when he played for he played for Kilmarnock, he was staying in hotel room in Scotland, and he kind of wondered what what is he doing? He which put his life staying in the hotel room playing for Kilmarnock when he can move home. And they have that experience in the squad of like he knows what it's like to make the move to England. And a lot of the players they're playing in Dublin, they're playing for Shamrock Rovers, they're winning medals, they're getting well paid. And like there is a path to it now from players into the Irish national team. I know we haven't seen like a Michael Duffy, a Jack Byrne, Graham Burke, a Michael Patch Coleman so like step up, but there is an actual genuine bonfire connection with the team. So I feel like it's, it's not even about the players making the move over to England, especially with with Brexit looming and how that will affect players' contracts and travel restrictions and whatnot. But I feel like with the squad themselves, it's Graham Burke is definitely one to make the step up to the Irish national team. I suppose Jack Byrne and himself. Uh, I suppose they're the main two. Or I suppose getting Graham Burke back into the Irish squad and making sure, but he will go back cross channel because he's on loan. Yeah, you, you mentioned, Dylan, that uh, the stability and certainty that Rovers have as a club is one of the main positives they have going for them moving into next season. And one of the clubs that maybe had the kind of air of stability shattered a little bit this year was Dundalk. Um, obviously facing into a massive Europa League campaign at the minute, but the first time they finished outside the top two since 2012, uh, they parted ways with Vinnie Perth, who, uh, pr- who provided continuity to the Stephen Kennedy era. And they brought in a relatively unknown, unheard of manager without his full UEFA license, Filippo Giovanni. And there's been all the problems with interference from the ownership. There's been several really good pieces written about it. And um, where do you think Dundalk are now as like the, the, the dominant force or one of the dominant forces in the last decade? With Dundalk, I feel like it seems like a very volatile situation in itself, especially with the ownership. Like, even Daniel McConnell had a great piece published in the Irish Independent last August where he outlined, like you were saying, the relationship between the owners and the club when you had suggestions to set a phone up in the, in the dugout. There were suggestions of... There, was even, there were suggestions of having the first team to play over to Scotland to play friendly against Southampton on means to fill a league game against St. Patrick's Athletic, which would have been their first game back after the break. There was... Also, a uh, suggestion of that the squad would fly over, quarant- fly over, come back from the game and spend their isolation period in the team's training complex, the youth development centre, and just have bunk beds brought in so they could train. But there was also a hint of what's going to happen next in that piece from Diane McConnell when there was the ex-licensing officer of the club. There was an ex-licensing, uh, Simon Blackmore, the club's licensing officer. Uh, he left the club recently. He said he was told by uh, Peak, Six represent- Peak Six representative that the, the their plan for Dundalk was to improve their image as football people so they can invest in multiple clubs. So I feel like if anything, Dundalk will be a long-term vessel. Like, there has been a lot of talk about Dundalk because was it half... Uh, over a dozen of the current squad are out of contract at the end of the season and what they want to see what they want to do is there's, there's r- rumours of 
what they want to do is that bring over players from America. Like there was one, uh, which is quite a bonkers story in itself, of Josh Gatt, who was mm. signed for the club based off an interview he did on ESPN. And Bill Hulsner rang up, uh, rang up Vinnie Perth. Was like, we're signing this guy because he needs a chance. Uh, there was uh, the other American lad uh, the club signed. Uh, the other American lad, I have his name right now here somewhere in front of me. Uh, Tanner Dorgan, Tanner Dorgan, who now plays for Athlone Town on loan. But they, what they want to start doing is bringing over the U- U.S. players from the NCWA, bringing those in and having them play for Dundalk. I kind of use that as like a springboard to, I suppose, continental Europe and the UK. But like, even an anonymous source at Daniel McConnell that like the US college system is the equivalent of junior football in Ireland. So I feel like even, I know people might quick to say, but, ah, but Dundalk are in the Europa League group stages. They're playing the Emirates on Thursday night against Arsenal. They're running Europe, disguised a lot of internal problems in the club. Like, it disguised a lot of internal problems in the club. Like, when they came back from the restart, they drew one all the past. They drew one all the past. They lost two one to Bowes. They drew two all with Waterford. They lost three one to Sligo. They lost four to the Shamrock Rovers. They lost one in the way to Waterford. They played Cork City. They played Cork City. They scored two goals in two minutes through two defensive mistakes from the Cork City defence. And Cork City are relegated. They drew nil all with Harps. They drew nil all with Bowes. They haven't been great since the restart. And one of the problems they had back in 2017 was the, the European hangover because their European campaign will end on the, the 12th of December, just this a ballpark date around like the start of December. They'll be back in pre-season pre training at the start of January. They won't have much of a rest. And in 2017, there was a little bit of a hangover. They lost the President's Cup that year to Cork City 3-0. They lost to Derry City 3-1. They lost to Cork 2-1. They lost to Bray 3-1. They lost to Galway 2-1. Lost to Rovers 2-1. They drew nil all with Derry. They lost 3-0 to Cork in the first half of the season. I know these results are spread out, but those are results Dundalk wouldn't have normally had. Like, they did get their act together, but there was that mild hangover of having an up-and-down pre-season, given the fact that they were so... They just came off the back of a European campaign, had a quick break, and were straight away back into it. So I feel like there's a lot of variables here with Dundalk, and you also have the owner, who's quite involved in the team. I spoke... I've interviewed uh, Filippo twice, and on both occasions, I, it's come up in the conversation or it's come up in the mix about the involvement with the owners, and he's kind of played down and he's completely dismissed it, to be honest, of there being any interference. So, but he will be in Oriel Park next season, uh, from what I understand. So, like, you have him, you have a few players who are still under contract, but apart from that, there is a lot of uncertainty in the club, which has been masked by this European run. Uh, you were watching Cove Ramblers there <laughs> before joining us. Um, how do you feel the quality actually is in Division 1? Obviously, I, I watch a lot of Galway. Um, and I've been actually impressed with the standard in that compared to the first division, for example. Um, I suppose next season is going, to be, it's going to be a very strange year for the for the B division or for the second division. because Or the first division, sorry. Because no one knows what's going to happen with Shamrock Rovers too. Um but UCD, they're always there and thereabouts. Like, as I'm watching, like, as I'm talking to you right now, I have the table in front of me, and it's changed four times this evening because there are so many variables. But it's it's just so fascinating, like, this time, because we don't know what the sto- how Irish football will look next year because of COVID. But he was going to come back, whoever will be in the league, because there's a chance Shelburne could get relegated with Finn Harps games in hand because they'll be in the playoffs. But I feel like... <laughs> 
Galway remain in the first division for next season, they'll be in an incredibly strong, strong position. They have financial backing. They have a natural winner, John Caulfield, who has won every single trophy in Irish football, either as a player or a manager. And I, I'm not just talking about, oh, he won the league in the FA Cup. He's won the Munster Senior League. He's won the FA Intermediate Cup. He's won the Conningwood Cup. He's won everything. So he's a natural winner. And he, kind of, he enforces that siege mentality on the clubs he brings to, which he was fantastic with at Cork. So if Galway remain in the first division for next season, Galway will be serious contenders for that next year, just purely because John is in charge. Like, you just look at his record since he took over. There was the last-minute winner away at Cavendish. There was the last-minute winner against Bray Wanderers. There was beating UCD in in Belfield. There was been so much result. There's been so much complete turnaround of results. Um, Longford Town next season could be very hit or miss. It'll be Dar Doyle's third season, well, th- second full season in charge of the club. And this season they were very consistent. Like as I'm speaking right now, Wexford just equalised against Longford. But I feel like he'd have learned because I feel like he was thrust into the job last year when he'd been left for Cork. His first game was a two-all draw away to Bohemians in the FA Cup and they got dumped out in penalties. So he had to learn, he had to learn for the rest of 20, 2019, 2020, the season was disrupted. He was come, he, the season was disrupted. He was still learning himself as a manager because a lot of people forget Darrell Dahl only finished off as a player three years ago with Cabin Teeley. So Longford will be there and thereabouts. They're due with title charge because they haven't done it. They've been in the first division now since 2017 and they've all finished in the playoffs or just outside the playoffs. Uh, you never know with Cabin Teeley, especially you just never know with Cabin Teeley. Like they won the first five games of the first of the season and we're kind of looked as the, yeah, let's give the title to Cabin Teeley. That's it. Cabin Teeley are going up. But since the restart, they've been incredibly hit or miss. They've been losing 5-0 to UCD. They've been losing games left, right and centre. They needed a last-minute goal to beat Cove Ramblers. No disrespect to Cove Ramblers. They've been very hit or miss. So it's it's very hard to say say who's going to win the first division next season. But overall and standard, I'd say the first division with like, I suppose, five teams from the Premier Division are able to, anyone's able to beat anyone. There is very little between them. Like it's Shamrock Rovers, Dundalk, one or two teams, and then it's, I suppose, 13, 14 teams who all have this, who are all in around the same level, and like it's, who all, like, who are all around the same level there and thereabouts. Like last year, Galway United knocked Cork City out of the FBI Cup. You have Wexford are into the FBI Cup quarterfinals this season. You have uh, Cove Ramblers this season put, like, gave Dundalk a proper game. So, like, there isn't, too much between the two, like the two divisions in itself. You just have Shamrock Rovers and Dundalk, or there's lectures ahead of everyone else. Dylan, obviously, COVID is uh, is hanging around in the background for a lot of clubs. There's been a lot of problems uh, financially over the past couple of years, and Irish football financially has, has always been a touchy subject. But I suppose, you know, similarly to Cork last year, there's going to be a lot of potential issues for teams next year, kind of trying to get the Premier League licences and, you know, getting access into um, the League of Ireland structure. Like, earlier I was looking, you know, the, the way things will play out tonight, there could potentially be, you know, no League of Ireland Premier Division side from Galway, Cork or Limerick. You know, the three biggest cities outside of Dublin, 
and you know the shape of 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 you know the Premier Division could very be could be very lopsided. Like, do you anticipate any financial issues next year going into the new season with the with the licensing um, kind of you know the licenses that uh, that clubs have to avail of? I feel like the FBI licensing requirements were always very strict for elite clubs to have. Like I only spoke to Neil O'Riordan about this last weekend, and actually Neil is quite well. Actually, gave a speech about this at the Sports Writers Association of Ireland Awards in two thousand and seven, especially over the whole the, the Shelburne situation in two thousand and six, and Dublin City FC kind of just imploding midway through that season. And like licensing has always been kind of a touchy subject because there was a lot of requirements for a club to get a league license, but I feel like. If there was ever a time for us to reevaluate everything, it's now with COVID because clubs like Irish clubs don't have a lot of like I'm not an accountant, I don't know the terminology, but Irish clubs realistically live season to season. They they can plan immediate long term. They can't afford to plan two, three years down the line. Mm. So I feel like clubs this season were lacking from the restart, were lacking a huge income. They were down gate receipts. And I know there was a huge uptake in watch LOI, but like that's that's grand, but like clubs are missing out on two two thousand people, three thousand people a week, one thousand five hundred people a week, a thousand people a week. People say, yeah, but you buy your match ticket. Some people just go, sure, I'm gonna go down to Turners Cross this evening and see Cork City play. Mm. I bring the small fella. Sure, we're inside in Turners Cross. You know what? I'm gonna pick up a Cork City scarf off there or a Cork City jersey, or like even Shamrock Rovers are a prime example where they're based in Tala with a huge population with a lovely stadium with a lovely stadium combine that with the fact that they just won the league title they could have easily brought in 6,000 people the night they'd win the league which would all go oh dad I need a Shamrock Rovers jersey so they're missing out on all those revenue or the merchandising opportunity so clubs would be down down money so the, the FBI would probably need to take that into account when they're doing the books and working and licensing for 2021 or trying to give clubs added support but if there was ever a time for there to a worse time for there to be a pandemic or a worse time for anything to happen in Irish football is right now when the FBI is literally on its knees. Mm. But I feel like there, there will have to be some allowances to ha- for clubs. But just going on to what you said there, it's it's mad though the geographical spread of how the league could look for 2021. Like I remember back in the 2011 or 2012 Premier Division season, it was 2012 had... Shelburne, Shamrock Rovers, St. Pat's, Bohemians, uh, Drahdy United, Drahdy United, Bray Wanderers, Dundalk, who were all based in a 40, 45 minute drive of each other. It was an incredibly strong Leinster contingent, uh, contingent, and uh, I've done that word terribly wrong, terribly, but it was a very Dublin dominated league. But it, it happens, it goes in cycles. I remember back in 2018, there was three Munster teams in the league. And it was like, since when is there Cork, Limerick, and Waterford in the league? That was it was unheard of. It hadn't happened since 1994, I think, or 2004. For one of, uh, hadn't happened in a while. So like, it just it goes in cycles. It just, it just hopefully the the League of Ireland mm. or the FBI can give some allowances and actually try and work with the FBI, where the FBI can work with the league and actually create a system which is a less stringent uh, licensing system for next season because a lot of clubs. A lot of clubs are living on the breadline. Indeed, and I suppose with the 
you know, the mask being unveiled on, on the FBI over the past couple of months uh, with Mark Tighe through the Sunday Times, you know, we'd like to think that the League of Ireland will be uh, will be in better shape for it as well now that the FBI is beginning to, to be reformed. Um, Dylan, thanks very much for joining us, Stephen. Yeah, thank you very much, Dylan.